0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So, I'll turn to our scripture readings this morning. We have two of them in connection with the Canons of Dort, Chapter Two. First one is uh, Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His truth. Now we go to the New Testament, to the epistle to the Romans, chapter 10. Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The Word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How? How? Then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news! But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The sermon this morning is on the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized by the church in the Canons of Dort, chapter 2. This morning we're especially giving our attention to Articles 5, 6, and 7. So let's now turn to the Canons of Dort, Chapter 2, Article 5. The Universal Proclamation of the Gospel. The promise of the Gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise ought to be announced and proclaimed universally and without discrimination to all peoples and to all men, to whom God in His good pleasure sends the gospel, together with the command to repent and believe. Article 6, Why Some Do Not Believe That, however, many who have been called by the gospel neither repent nor believe in Christ, but perish in unbelief, does not happen because of any defect or insufficiency in the sacrifice of Christ offered on the cross, but through their own fault. Article 7, why others do believe. But to those who truly believe and by the death of Christ are freed from their sins and saved from perdition, this benefit comes only through God's grace. Given to them from eternity in Christ, God owes this grace. Beloved congregation of Christ Jesus, rightly or wrongly some have given reformed believers a nickname maybe you've heard this nickname used before it's the frozen chosen and that nickname the frozen chosen plays off our belief in god's election or god's choosing and then it adds the fact that instead of being on fire we're frozen and that especially in connection with reaching out to those who don't know Christ. Election is then associated with a lack of excitement about outreach. The frozen chosen. Now, the nickname is a contemporary one. I haven't exactly been able to trace where it originated, but the idea is very old. For hundreds of years... Non-reformed Christians have claimed that teachings like election, they lead God's people away from excitement about missions and evangelism. This is despite the fact that many of the men whom God used in most powerful ways through the history of missions, many of them were believers in what we call the doctrines of grace. Men such as William Carey, John Patton, John Mott, Henry Martin, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, and we could go on. At the end of the day, the evidence for the doctrines of grace leading God's people to be indifferent towards missions, that evidence is actually very, very slim. In fact, it's quite the opposite. With most of the men I mentioned, their evangelistic zeal self-consciously grew out of their believing and embracing the doctrines of grace. Zeal for missions and a love for and belief in the doctrines of grace. They just went together for those men. Now when we talk about the doctrines of grace, we should be clear about what we mean. I'm talking about the teachings that we find in the canons of Dort. These teachings, they place God at the center of our salvation. God's grace in Christ. At the center. And they've often been summarized by that familiar acronym, TULIP. TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now over the last three months, along with Pastor Vischer, we've gone through the first chapter of the canons of Dort. The first chapter, as you may remember, deals with unconditional election. The basic teaching there is that God chooses us before the foundation of the world, purely out of His grace. And last week, Pastor Fisher began the second chapter with us. And the second chapter, as we've heard, deals with limited atonement. We could also call it particular redemption. This doctrine of grace teaches us that Christ died only for the elect, for God's chosen people. His death was enough to pay for the sins of every human being, but it only works to pay for the sins of those who believe in Christ, the elect. As a result, Christ doesn't just make salvation a a possibility, which then we have to uh, go after and we have to embrace, But Christ makes salvation a reality. He acquired salvation for us, and then He also applies it to us. All out of grace. It's not something we deserve. And we're going to get more into the details of that next week as we look at Articles 8 and 9 of Chapter 2. Now today we're dealing with Articles 5 through 7, and they have a bit of a different focus. These articles give attention to the preaching of the Gospel. And like the rest of the canons adored, it comes, against, comes to us against the background of the controversy, the battle with the Arminians, or the remonstrance as they're also called. The Arminians knew the Reformed teaching about limited atonement. And they thought about it. And they said, well, if that's true, that Christ died for the elect and only for the elect, then there's no point in preaching the gospel to everybody. If atonement is limited, then the preaching of the promise of the gospel has to be limited too. You only preach to the elect. Well, at first glance, that might seem to be logical. might seem to make sense. Well, the canons of Dort respond to this way of thinking in these three articles we're looking at this morning. And rather than stymie evangelistic zeal, the doctrines of grace, including limited atonement, they motivate God's people. They inspire God's people to get excited and to get involved with their missionary calling. And so our theme for this morning is this, the doctrines of grace motivate God's people to carry out their missionary calling. And we'll see through these three articles, God's grace announced and proclaimed Second of all, rejected. And then finally, accepted. There are two sets of facts that the Reformed churches taught from the Scriptures that the Arminians found to be contradictory. On the one hand, like I said, the teaching that Christ died only for the elect. On the other hand, there's the teaching that the Gospel is to be proclaimed universally. And in the Arminian way of thinking... Those two things just couldn't go together for the Reformed. And that's why these two sets of facts are together here in chapter 2 of the Canons. The Reformed churches wanted to make it clear that there's no contradiction between these two things. These two sets of facts can live together. and starts with the promise. The scriptures are clear about the promise of the Gospel. the beginning of Article 5, there's a paraphrase of John 3.16. The promise is that whoever believes in Christ crucified will not perish, but will have the life that lasts forever. Now to this point, the Arminians would be nodding their heads. No problem. And today too, most Christians would hear this and they'd say, yeah, that's, that's good. Right? It's plain scriptural teaching. But the next sentence is where the problems would start especially with the phrase announced and proclaimed universally and without discrimination to all peoples and to all men. It's not that people would disagree with that statement as such. I have to make that clear. Nearly all Christians, I think, would agree that the Gospel should be told to everyone. The problem is that some Christians, especially the Arminians, would read this and say, this doesn't make any sense in the context of the Canons of Dort. If Christ only died for the elect, why should we bother telling the gospel to everybody? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, Christ commands us to. Passages like Matthew 28:18 to 20, the so-called great commission, the church is sent out to preach and teach the good news. And our identity in Christ means that Christ's command is not something that's burdensome to us, that we hear it and we go, oh no, do we really have to do that? It's something we do naturally, something we want to do by the power of His Spirit working in us. That's the first reason. The second reason is the telling of the gospel is the means or the tool by which God gathers in those for whom Christ died. The Gospel and its preaching is the means by which God creates faith in the elect. The means by which God calls them to Christ. It's the way in which Christ's atonement is applied to His people. The preaching of the Gospel is the way in which God's decree of election is made to come to reality. And so the Gospel... Has to be proclaimed, and it has to be done universally. There are many scripture passages in the Bible that support that. Many of them are in the New Testament. But there are also passages in the Old Testament, which compel God's people to tell about Him, to tell about His salvation to everyone. Not just to one group of people, one ethnic, people from one ethnic background. And one example is what we read from Psalm 96. This Psalm encourages believers to declare God's glory among the nations. To tell of His marvelous deeds. For Old Testament believers, those were God's works of salvation. When God delivered His people repeatedly. You know, think of the Exodus from Egypt as one of the best, most well-known examples repeated instances of salvation. And that was entirely out of grace. The people never deserved it, earned it through their obedience. For New Testament believers, we have what God has done for us in Christ. Again, showing us His grace, giving us what we've never deserved. A new life that lasts forever. This Psalm Psalm 96 calls us to share that good news with all nations. And Romans 10, the other passage we read, speaks similar language when Paul writes about the gospel being preached to both Jews and Gentiles. That implies that God wants his word to be spread universally. Let's draw that out for a minute. You know, we have missionaries we support Quite a few of them, actually. We have missionaries working in Brazil. We have a new missionary who's just arrived in Smithers. We have our local urban missionary, Reverend Dong. But brothers and sisters, look around us. There are many in our communities and broader surroundings who've never heard the promise of the Gospel. I'm positive that you could go into certain neighborhoods in Surrey And you could find hundreds of people who know nothing or very, very little about the Lord Jesus. What's the answer to this? Is it to call another missionary? Send him to the Sikhs and the Hindus who live among us? No, the answer is simpler. And it begins with you and me. It begins with us developing relationships with individual people whom God puts on our path. And sometimes we have to extend our paths a little bit. We have to get outside our comfort zone. Go places we might not otherwise go. Speak with people to whom we otherwise might not speak. Look for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Seize the opportunities. And God will give us opportunities to speak about Christ. And how are we to do that? Well, Article five of the canon speaks of announcing and proclaiming. Now it's interesting that two different words are used there. Now I can't say for sure, but I think the Synod of Dort was working with the scriptural distinction between witnessing and preaching. You know, witnessing is something that all believers are called to do. And it takes place in all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of places. Witnessing can be conversational. It can take place over email or over MSN or whatever other means. Preaching is more official, which is to say that it's tied to a special office. Preaching is done by a specially appointed ambassador or herald of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us about both, and we're called as a church to do both. And how we specifically do that, announcing and proclaiming or witnessing and preaching, is something that we also get guidance on from the Scriptures. Just look at the book of Acts. Study the way the apostles did their missionary work. Study the way the early church shared the gospel with the unconverted. They preached the promise and they gave God's command to repent and believe. The apostles didn't say to the unconverted, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The apostles never preached to unbelievers saying, Jesus died for your sins. They never said things like, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Won't you please let Him come in? The apostles never talked like that because they knew that the Lord Jesus only died for the sins of those who believe in Him. And this was reflected in the careful way in which they told the Gospel. Preaching the promise and giving the command to repent and believe. And our Gospel efforts should follow along the same lines. When we get opportunities to speak about Christ, we share the promise. We tell people the beautiful promise that if you believe in Christ, your sins will be forgiven, your life will be changed forever by the Holy Spirit. You believe in Christ, you'll have a healthy and new relationship with your Creator. You can live in His love. That's the promise. Now God says you have to repent. You need to have a change of mind. That's what repent means. Having a change of mind about your sins, about yourself, and about who God is. God says in the Bible that you have to believe in Jesus Christ. It's a command. And a command, that means that you, you might disobey it, but you're not allowed to. When the king gives a command and it's not obeyed, there will be consequences for, for that disobedience. And we're not done after we've told the gospel, right? We prayed for God to give us the opportunity. We prayed for God to give us the words and the strength we needed. We, we asked Him to fill us with His Spirit so that we would be winsome and persuasive. And then we also afterwards have to pray for the conversion of those with whom we've talked. We have to pray. And not just pray once and just say a little prayer and be, be done with it, but pray repeatedly, pray vigorously We pray and we put it in God's hands because we know that God is the only one who can graciously take a a heart of stone and turn it into a beating heart of flesh. And when we pray for that, and when we see God do it, what happens? We're filled with praise for Him. We give Him the glory. So brothers and sisters, pray for those with whom you share the gospel. Pray and keep on praying, even if it takes years before God gives us the answer we seek. You see, the doctrines of grace are beautiful because they, they focus all our attention on God. He's the one who gives new life. That's why we're praying to Him. And when we think about limited atonement, we're reminded again that He makes it a reality. Not merely a a possibility that man has to embrace. And when we consider our missionary calling, there's no contradiction between holding to these teachings and, and being zealous for gospel outreach. Why wouldn't we want to tell everyone about a gracious God? Why wouldn't we want to share the good news that Christ died for those who believe in Him? God did it all. It doesn't depend on us in the least. God's grace. It's amazing. It's worth sharing wherever and with whomever we can. And when we do that, there are two responses. Well, let's look now at the, the first one as we see God's grace rejected. As we come to Article 6, as we're looking at right now, again, historical context is important. The Arminians or the Remonstrants said, okay, given your teaching about limited atonement, and given that you preach the Gospel to all, which, by the way, doesn't make any sense, you still have to deal with the fact that many don't believe the promise. And with your way of understanding it, we've got to blame somebody for it. We're going to blame Christ. We're going to blame the sacrifice of Christ in your system. Obviously, Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough to pay for their sins. Of course, the canons have already anticipated that. The synod of Dort insisted in Article four that Christ's death is of infinite value and worth. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. There was nothing lacking in it. You can't blame Christ's sacrifice for the fact that many do not respond positively to the call to faith and obedience faith and repentance. When God's gracious promise in Christ is rejected, there's only one address for the blame, and it's not in heaven. It's the unbeliever himself or herself. You can't pin it on Christ. You can't pin it on God. Unbelievers are responsible for their unbelief for 100%. We find the same teaching in Romans 10. The preaching of God's grace in Christ goes out to both Jews and Gentiles. Preaching, like I said before, is the means by which God creates faith. But some, and in that context of Romans 10, particularly referring to the Jews, some did not accept the message. They heard it. They were called by it externally. But many of them rejected it. And whose fault was that? Well, it was entirely their own. They were a disobedient and obstinate people. And likewise today, when people are called by the gospel and then reject it, it's completely their own responsibility. And you know, it's not as if they have a desire to believe. That somehow they have this desire, but God or Christ, they stand in the way and, and keep them from obtaining what's promised. They willingly remain in unbelief. That's where they want to be. And they're entirely responsible for that. You know, it's not like they remain in that position against their will. And as we consider this, we also have to reckon with our limited perspective on things. We can't determine whether somebody is elect or reprobate. We can't look into hearts. And that has to be kept in mind when we tell the gospel. You know, perhaps we we have an unbelieving coworker, we have an acquaintance, maybe it's somebody on the bus. We've told them the gospel promises once. We shared our hope with them. But they rejected it. It was their own fault. Now, does that mean that they're reprobate and we shouldn't bother with them anymore? No, not at all. It's happened many times throughout history that people have heard the Gospel message. Not just once, but numerous times before finally submitting to Christ. If you want a biblical example, think of the Apostle Paul. He says that he was formerly a blasphemer but He was shown grace. So don't misunderstand the doctrines of grace as saying that we give people one chance. And then after that one chance, we'll know whether they're elect or whether they're reprobate. And then we can keep going with them or we can be finished with them. That's just not in the picture here. It's not up to us to determine whether somebody is elect or reprobate. Our calling, our mandate, is to tell the good news of God's grace. To share the promise. To share the command to repent and believe. When we encounter rejection, Article 6 summarizes the teaching of Scripture and tells us that's man's fault. But that doesn't say anything about whether or not there will always be a rejection and whether or not this particular person is reprobate. The whole point here is to realize that salvation is entirely of God. Damnation belongs to man in his sin. When man is in his sin, he doesn't respond with repentance or faith. He remains under the just judgment of God. That result isn't pretty. It's not something pleasant to think about. But it is a reality. And God uses the telling of the gospel to further implicate those in rebellion against him so as to display his justice. And when his justice is displayed, then praises are also given to him. We see that in Psalm 96 as well towards the end. Think of verse 13. They will sing before the Lord for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His truth. And that's in connection with the singing for joy and the praises in the verses preceding. So when we tell the Gospel and that's met with rejection, we'll be sad and disappointed. But we can also know that this is part of God's plan to magnify His glory one way or another. And then we can accept it. Of course, the telling of the gospel can also have a positive outcome. And it's that to which we now turn with our last point this morning. Now in Paul's description of what's happened with the gospel among the Jews in Romans 10, we do find that some accepted the good news. Some believed that God raised Jesus from the dead. Some called on the name of the Lord and were saved. When the gospel of grace is told, there are those who, in the words of article 7, truly believe and by the death of Christ are freed from their sins and saved from perdition. Perdition is eternal punishment. And to whom do we give the credit for this outcome? Again, we turn our hearts and attention entirely to God. His work in people's lives is the reason why anybody believes the promise. His work is the reason why people repent, or they have a change of mind about sin themselves and Him. His work is the reason why people believe in Christ for the complete forgiveness of all their sins. That's why the canons say that this benefit comes only through God's grace given to them from eternity in Christ. There is no one else to praise. So people... Can't be proud that the gospel promise has been believed. Rather, this is a reason for humility, for thankfulness, for praise. It's entirely of grace. And just to make sure we understand that, the Synod of Dort added those few words at the end of Article six God owes this grace to no one. If it was owed, it wouldn't be grace. Now, this isn't the first or last time that the canons of Dort make this point, but it's important enough to repeat. Also in our own day, people, even when they're redeemed by Christ, they're prone to be proud, to be thankless, slow to praise God. Brothers and sisters, we can be thankful to God that our confessional standards, summarizing scriptural truth, They poke us and they prod us, push us in the right direction. Anyone who believes the gospel of grace can only attribute his belief and every other good thing in his life to the God of grace. And what does that do to our motivation with respect to our missionary calling? Well, to answer that question, I'd like to give you a quote from John Piper. As far as his doctrine of salvation goes, John Piper is a Calvinist. In some ways, he's, he's not Reformed. but We can still go a long ways with Piper as Reformed people. John Piper has an excellent book on missions that I can highly recommend to you. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. And he starts that book, Let the Nations Be Glad, with these powerful words. This is the quote. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. That's the end of the quote. Worship. Well we can we can call them the magnification of God's glory. It's what it's all about. When we believe the doctrines of grace, we're eager to see God worshiped for being who He is, the one who gave us and all His chosen people all the good we never deserved. And we long to see the Gospel message embraced by those who are called so that we can praise God more for His grace. The doctrines of grace teach us that the Gospel has to be announced since it's part of God's plan. When that Gospel is told, there are two responses, and each one is part of the sovereign God's plan to reveal His glory and to magnify His praises. Whether it's belief or unbelief, God will have Himself exalted through us. And that pushes us and inspires us to be faithful in carrying out the missionary task that Christ has given us today. Because we know why we're here, don't we? Why are we here on this earth? It's to live for Him. To live for His praise and honor. So you see that, that nickname, the frozen chosen, that's difficult to defend historically. Reformed believers have embraced the doctrines of grace and so have been motivated to mission and outreach. If you think about it, that nickname does challenge us today. Are we the frozen chosen? And if we are, have we really understood, have we really grasped the doctrines of grace? We can't blame the canons of Dort. Can't blame the, the doctrines of grace if we are lackluster in our zeal for outrage. In fact, the problem is more likely that we haven't really understood them. Or if we have understood them at some level, we've just been lazy in seeing how they ought to impact our own lives and how we interact with the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, the truth of scripture this morning challenges us to be a fierce and fiery light in the world. The doctrines of grace give us ample motivation to get out there and to shine for Christ. Sharing the gospel. Telling the promise. Telling us, telling the commands to repent and believe. Praying for those who hear it. Praising God for those who accept it. Praising God that we accept it. All for His glory. Amen.